The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have established such a thing as local churches, congregations where we gather together regularly to, to sing praise to you, to pray, to, to listen to your word, to experience some foretaste of, of what the kingdom in all of its fullness will be like, to experience as we should here on a Sunday morning, a, a little taste of heaven on earth of communion of the people of God together in your presence. It was your idea to do that, to assemble together and then to dwell in our midst as, as one temple. You living here among us, moving within the middle of this group where we are gathered together, two, three, a couple hundred of us. Thank you for that. Thank you that as we sit here this morning now, we can listen. But I, I pray, Lord, that more than just listening, you would help us to, to hear. And that in hearing, there would be something that is joy-producing, in a, in a real way. Lord, let us not be a people that gather here and just week after week sing the songs and pray the prayers and talk about the Bible. But would you let us experience what you meant to have experience when you created the idea of congregation and corporate worship Would you let us taste and see your goodness in what you have made here? And let us be a people who, as we listen, we, we hear your voice and are drawn on to follow you with one another together, drawn on to follow you in ways that are joy-producing in us and are for the, the joy of those out there in the world, too. As we changed people and a changed people, live then in the community and testify, show witness to your goodness. So produce change in us, Lord. Produce a, a, a thinking and, and a hearing that is, that is accurate and that is, that is clear and that is appropriately sober-minded. But also, Lord, the, the end of that is to be worship and delight because you are good. So move us through that whole process each day, this morning included, as we take this passage. Open it up and show us what's here. Teach us, help us to think carefully about you and about ourselves, about our, our obligation before you. But Lord, take that 
and move it on, keep moving it on so that we are a people who are then lifted up to be worshipers, who are, are a delighted people. And the end of this would be a people who love other people in your name like you love other people. That cannot be that cannot be accomplished just by us trying harder. That's why we're praying and asking you to do it. Give us ears to hear your voice and to, to see your truth and to see you and then move us on to make us loyal lovers like you are. That would be delightful for us. That would be delightful for us. It would be honoring to you and it would be a blessing to the world around us. So please do that this morning. Take this church gathering, take us sitting here before your word, build us up, correct us, change us, grow in us love for you and grow in us love for you and love for others. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the middle of Luke chapter 10 where we have just concluded the lengthy account of the sending of the 72. Jesus, as we saw, is headed towards Jerusalem. That's the whole last part of this book of Luke. He's headed there for the final climactic events that will include the cross, but he's going to hit a whole bunch of other places on the way and in preparation he appoints teaches and then sends out a large group of messengers, witnesses before him to gather in people to the kingdom. And they go out and they see something amazing. The kingdom of God actually comes. It begins to come and it, and it expands. It starts growing through them. It's amazing. And as we saw last week, it is a great privilege. That was the point of emphasis last week. He has granted an opportunity to us, to those messengers at that time and then everybody since then, to us now to live in the kingdom of God that has come in Jesus and to experience the manifold blessings of this age now that are far better than anything, everything that came before. We live in an era now that is, for the believer, an era in which we see and experience tremendous things. And it is a privilege to live now and in particular, a privilege to be included in the building of that kingdom. The Old Testament kings and prophets longed to see it and longed to be a part of building it, and they didn't get to be. But we do. And that is a tremendous privilege. It is a blessing to be included in this mission of kingdom building. And that's where Jesus ended. That was the final note struck of that long passage. Privilege privilege to be involved in mission. Now, as we move away from that, we move into the second half of, of chapter 10, the focus changes, but really in the big picture, the focus isn't really changing. He's still on the subject of discipleship. There's a bunch in this book about the subject of discipleship. We've seen a lot. He's been leaning heavily on the mission component of discipleship. To be a disciple, a follower of Jesus includes following him in his call to mission, proclaiming the kingdom and the power of Christ. But that's not everything. That's not the complete and total 
definition of what it means to be a disciple as if all that being a disciple means is going out and talking to other people about the kingdom. There's, there's a lot more than that. Being a disciple is about all of life. It is about our total person. It's about our character. It's going to include things about maturity and, and relationship and ethics and holiness and righteousness. It's all about our whole life, one's whole life, a follower of Jesus being conformed to Christ in, in every way. Mission, following him in mission, being a, a key component of that, but not the whole thing. We are a coughing bunch this morning. <laughs> Everybody take a deep breath. <sighs> okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's chilly in here. Did we, I think we tried to get that thing turned off earlier. Did it get turned off? Or is it still blowing? Yeah. Well, if anybody can do anything about that, please do. We're going to think about discipleship anyway, cold or not. Because that's what Luke has before, in front of us. Discipleship, that's about not only just mission, but that is about all of our character. And so Jesus this morning is going to talk about what God's people are like, and he's going to do that in response to a question put to him by a religious expert, somebody who is an expert in the law of God. So let me read Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. It's, it's one of the most familiar stories in the whole Bible. So we're looking at something that, that I, I reckon many of us are rather familiar with. But we're going to talk about it, and, and I hope understand some more of what's actually here and how it is given from Jesus to us to help grow us in Christian maturity and discipleship. So follow along, Luke 10, 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, well, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. 
And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. A very familiar story, and I'm going to draw two observations, and just a clue beforehand, the two observations are verbatim the same. I'm just going to put different emphasis on, this, on it the second time. So you can write this down twice. It is the first and the second observation. God's requirement, colon, loving total devotion to him and loving selfless service to all others. As I said, it's going to be the first and the second observation. I'm going to emphasize differently the second time. But now I'm saying God's requirement Loving total devotion to him and loving selfless service to all others. There are two loves here, one requirement. God's requirement, singular. Two loves, one towards God, one towards others, but they are an inseparable singular pair. Can't, you can't divide them. It's what God calls us to, it's what he requires in the singular. That's what comes out in the first paragraph as the lawyer. And what that means is he's an expert in God's law. He's not like, like, like a prosecutor or something like that. He's, he's an expert in God's law. Elsewhere, the Bible would call him a scribe. He's a, a lawyer, a scribe, and he dialogues with Jesus. Verse 25, he asks, Teacher, what shall I do, or what would anybody do, to inherit eternal life? And in shorthand Christian language today, we might say, what do I have to do to be saved? It would be a fair way of putting that today. But he's talking about it in a different language. He knows there's a judgment coming, and that at the judgment, some will be lost, some will perish, and some will be saved. Some will receive from God eternal life, not eternal perishing. And he wants to be sure, what must I do to be certain that I will receive eternal life? Upon what does that verdict hinge, Jesus? That, that's his question. What does one do to get eternal life? And that's an important question for all of humanity to, to consider. It is not a Christian question. It's not a Bible question. It's not a religious person's question. It's, it is a question for all of humanity because there's one God, there's one judgment, and there is a great divide at that judgment. Some perish and some live. And so we all should be interested in what is the hinge upon what does that verdict get decided? It's for eternity. That's an important question that this guy's not really asking. He asks it, and we do get the answer eventually, but he's, in his mind, an expert in the law. He's thinking, I already know the answer. But he initiates this. He stands up to put Jesus to the test. I know the answer. I want to see if you know the answer. So he asks, flatteringly calling him teacher. But he's not here to be taught. He's asking a test. So he asks, and Jesus, when he turns it back in him, though we do find out that the answer to this, he asks him, well, well, what do you think? What is written in the law? What's the Bible say? Jesus is our authority. That's our authority. What is written? What has God told us his verdict hinges upon? The man answers, and we know from how in verse 28 Jesus approves, this is the correct answer. 
Jesus says, do this and you will live. At the judgment, you will receive and inherit eternal life. So this is the right answer. What is it? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your all. That's what the man says. With all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Which is not to say that there are four distinct pieces of a person. He's not saying we are one quarter heart, one quarter soul, one quarter strength. The words aren't even parallel. Strength is not parallel. He's not trying to divide us into four different categories. I'm going to talk more about this next week, this, this part of this verse. But for now, what we need to see is that what he's saying is love God with all of you in every way you can think of. With all of your all. Total devotion. All of me on the table. Yours. Which sounds a lot like what Jesus already said, right? All of us. All, everything, everything in every way you can think of. Yours. Good answer. Not just the external. Not just appearance. The inner self. The heart. Dependent on him. Trusting him. Following him. Listening to and obeying him. All of me his and love your neighbor as yourself what might not be obvious from from reading those two things unless you look at your footnotes is that he's referencing deuteronomy 6 and leviticus 19 he's he's referencing those passages he's taking this right out of the text and he puts them together what what does god require these two things because though he references those passages in particular, he could have found it anywhere. In fact, he could have found it in the Ten Commandments itself. Those are the two tables of the Ten Commandments, the two tables, the two sections. Numbers 1 through 4 are about how we relate to God, love the Lord. Numbers 5 through 10 are about how we relate to other people, love your neighbor. It is the law. It is what God has required. It is inseparable. So if you break one commandment, you break all of it. Singular requirement, love the Lord your God with all of your all and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what the verdict hinges on. Do this and you will live, you will be saved. And as you listen to that, realize this, this is important. If we were to go further into this, we would realize this is not different than saying Salvation is by faith alone. It might sound like right off, might sound like what, two different things here. What are we talking about? What do I have to do? And here's then things that you do. Like, is he talking about works? No. And if you think about it, when he says what you have to do is have all of your all, all of your heart in every conceivable way that you can given over to God, that's just different language for entrusted to him, surrendered to him, Believing, following him, obeying him. Those are all different ways of saying the same thing. He's just using different language from particular passages in the Old Testament. We could also find the Old Testament saying the righteous live by faith. You could use that one too. But in using this language, of which Jesus approves, which is in the New Testament here, in using this language, there's something else added in for us that is important for this morning's sermon. This is not different than saying salvation is by faith alone. 
But in talking about it like this, what we also now unavoidably see, salvation is by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It's never, saving faith is never perpetually all by itself. It is always followed by a different life. Always. This is important to say very clearly because it, this is, eternity hinges on this. We have to understand that we are not talking about do this, behave in this way, act in certain ways, and then you'll be saved. No, it is by faith, but faith, genuine faith, always is followed by a life full of actions that reveal that faith. Or to put it differently, there is no person who loves God with all of her heart but doesn't love God with all the rest of herself. I love God. I have truly given all of my heart to him, and in my mind I am truly surrendered to his will. I'm just not interested in following what he teaches if it doesn't agree with me. I'm just not about obeying him when it's too hard or unpopular. Particularly, I'm not really very interested in loving people that I find unlovely. But I belong to the Lord. My heart is His. There is no such schizophrenic, contradictory person. There isn't. And if we were to hear that, we would say, Really? You belong to the Lord? I mean, you, you just said you, you love him more than yourself. Your heart is surrendered to him, believing him. Really? Because surely in, in every other relationship in life, if, if we actually love somebody and actually are, are giving ourselves to them, actually surrendered to them, then what follows from that are actions that will reflect that. If I love you, I'm going to act like I love you. And if I don't act like I love you, you would ask, really? Do you really love me? Always in life, and certainly here, we would look and we would say, you say you belong to the Lord. Well, surely then there would be some desire, some increasing desire to follow him and some revealing that you obey him and that you trust him, that you find him to be good and, and believable and, and dependable. Not perfectly so. We're, we're still sinners, but increasingly so. And, thinking of the Sermon on the Mount, we would be grieved when we realized our shortcomings. We would, we would mourn. We would hunger and thirst for more righteousness in us. Not be content with less. Your faith will always be followed by works. Your heart will show itself in life. Real faith is always followed by works of faith such that it is entirely fair to say the verdict is on do you trust me or not? Okay, I hear you say that. 
Now let me see, is there any evidence that that's actually not just empty words? Yeah, there is. There will be. This devotion to God will be shown, will be seen in a life that is not perfectly, but increasingly drawn to follow him, drawn to trust him, drawn to be conformed to him. Genuine heart-level faith leads to a faith that works itself out in life. Did not Paul say in Galatians 5? That's frankly the only thing that matters. Faith working itself out in love. Paul in Galatians 5. Faith working through love, which incidentally is what our passage is about. Love. We can go further into the, into the theology behind loving God and its connection to action working out in life, but that's not really the focus for this passage. It's important to start there because we see this is what Jesus answers the question. Actually, the, he has the man answer the question. This is the verdict upon which eternity hinges. So We've got we to start there because that's what we need to come back to at the end, but that's not really the point. That's not really what this passage is about. He asks Jesus, and at the end of the first paragraph, they think they are in agreement, or at least he thinks they are in agreement. The passage is here because of the second paragraph. That's the main issue in front of us. The second half of this, of this single command, love your neighbor as yourself. So we need to move on to that. The first point, and the second point, God's requirement Loving total devotion to him and loving selfless service to all others. The second observation, I just lean on the all others. So observation number two, the same thing as the first one in bold, underlined, all others. It's important to follow the scribe's thinking as verse 29 takes a personal turn. He agrees. He said it. He agrees. What God requires of me is total devotion to him as seen in love of neighbor. Okay? But desiring to justify himself, that is, wanting to make clear that he is in fact right before God, justified. That's a legal verdict, not guilty. Wanting to establish the fact that he is in the clear, not guilty before God. I, I get the requirement. Total devotion to him, seen in love of neighbor. So, if I can kind of, who's my neighbor? I can make this manageable if I can say these ones. He's, what, he's, what he's hoping is that what the answer is, is people in the covenant community, other Israelites who are going to be easier to love, going to be closer to him, more like him, kind of hopes that's what the parameter is. And so Jesus tells the story to answer that question. As he does so, we're drawn into it. You're familiar with it. Man traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And in that area, certainly what's intended is this is a Jewish man. He's a victim of highway robbery, beaten, left for dead. That's the obvious tragedy. That's the setting. And, verse 31, now by chance, 
And as Jesus is telling this story, anybody who's read the Bible knows that's how God usually says, here comes the happy providence of God. Now, just by chance, so I'm reading this, I'm listening to Jesus tell the story, and I know that nothing happens by chance. God is in this. Along comes a priest. Perfect. Here's God come to save him. Along comes a priest. He's coming down, so he's coming back from the temple area in Jerusalem where he has been involved in the worship of the Lord. He's been displaying how much he loves the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, mind, and self. And he comes upon this guy and saw him and passed on by. Does nothing for his neighbor. There's a serious disconnect here in the story between love of God and love of neighbor. And we hear that and we say, what? But then along comes a Levite, another religious man, a religious servant, and he likewise comes by and sees the man and does nothing. He avoids him. We have a serious disconnect here. What's going on? Verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, and because this is not his home territory of Samaria, we, he's a foreigner here, there's no way this guy is actually any kind of a literal neighbor to him, this Jewish victim here. He realized there's hostility between Samaritans and Jewish people. So a Samaritan here, he comes along and he sees him, and he has compassion on him. And then look at all he did. The details here, there is so much red ink given to Jesus telling about all the details here. He had compassion on him. And he administered first aid to him. And then he put him on his own animal, which of course was all he could do. But Jesus tells us that to kind of get the picture. The Samaritan walks and the other guy rides. He put him, put him on his own animal and he took him to an inn and he cared for him more there and then he put him up for about a month in this inn. And then he, he, gave, a, he, he gave the innkeeper a blank check. Whatever else it costs you, I'll pay it when I get back. How vulnerable. I mean, who knows how much the guy's going to charge him. I'll pay it. I myself will pay it when I get back. He lays himself out there for this guy. In, way, in, in manner after manner after manner, he totally, selflessly serves him. That's what love of neighbor looks like. And that's all very clear to us, very familiar. Many of us have heard this dozens of times. But the story has a little bit of an additional bite in it that I, I hinted at a little bit, but it, it might not be immediately obvious to us if this is unfamiliar to you, or if it's grown stale from familiarity. There's a bit of additional power in this that for us to feel it, it's got to be retold in a, in a way maybe like this. And I'm, I'm going to retell the story very briefly, and I'm going to try to change the details, which admittedly are going to miss some of us because I don't have the luxury of Jesus' monolithic audience. He's talking to one guy, but then a group of other people who are all the same and have all the same opinions about all kinds of same stuff. So we, we've got different opinions here. So it's going to miss some of us, and you're going to kind of wonder why I said that, but you'll get it. So here is, 
in short form, the Good Samaritan for the generic modern American church. Maybe not for us, for the generic modern American church. One day near Wheaton College, a Christian school, of course, if you're not familiar with Wheaton, one day near Wheaton College, a Christian student got mugged and left for dead. And by chance, a pastor who had been the chapel speaker that day at Wheaton came along, saw him lying there bleeding, and passed by. And then a professor, Professor New Testament, came along, likewise saw him, and did nothing. And then an atheistic gay rights activist while out campaigning for Hillary Clinton came along. <laughs> That's the part you get. <laughs> and of course, realizing that he was a Christian and that he was in trouble, saved his life with first aid and put him in his own car, never mind that the guy bled all over his seats. But he, he was dying. They put him in his own car and he took him to medical care and paid the whole bill and then visited him later at Wheaton to make sure that he was okay. Of course, I could flip the story around and make it a Trump campaigner, and I could, I could change the, the, the sexuality part, and I could change the religion part to make him not an atheist, but now he's a Muslim or whatever. It's not really about the Samaritan. It's not about affirming. The Samaritan's theology was wrong. Jesus isn't affirming anything about the Samaritan's theology. It's not about the Samaritan. It's about me. I would need to tell the story, if I was going to catch exactly you, I would need to tell the story in a way that, that reaches in and touches the things that are your opinions, which is why it's hard to do it in this audience, that are your personal, not theirs, but your opinions about particular people themselves, this group that one, and then confront that and maybe even shock and offend you and cause your blood to boil a little bit. He hooks the audience, Jesus does, with the failure of the people that they think should be the heroes and gets them saying, that ain't right. And then <clears throat> makes us do that very same thing to the third character. to shun them and be angry with them and to hate them. It all immediately blows up in our hearts. This is the whole point of the story, so cleverly shaped. It all blows up in our hearts as soon as the guy says, what? Samaritans are dogs. And you made him the hero? What? What? what, what, what? Atheists, gay rights activists, Hillary Clinton, What? As soon as that happens, your conscience reaches out and grabs you and convicts you. And you suddenly know, I'm not anywhere near as loving as I thought I was. And you're not justified, you're condemned. That attitude right there, that indignation is not love of neighbor as self. 
And you didn't realize until perhaps just now how you walk around day after day, all day long, latent haters. You avoid it because you avoid those people that you hate. Never has opportunity to come out. Or you only hang out with people who also hate them and you talk about it and you feel like it's okay. Or it's just your internal monologue. Anger, 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 churn, churn, churn. Them ones, them ones, that one, this guy. And then in a flash, you are suddenly no longer justified. You do not love your neighbor as yourself. Not all of them, not that one, not them. Your reactions betray you. And so the man is caught by the story, so caught. He can't even bring himself to say, the Samaritan. That's, that's the answer to the question. Which of them do you suppose? I mean, Jesus, can you think about, can you figure that out? You know, which of them do you suppose? Can't even bring himself to say, the Samaritan, the one who showed him mercy. And notice how Jesus changed the question. It was, who is my neighbor? And Jesus asked, which one of them proved to be a neighbor? Even in the question, he kind of clears aside some of the, the scribes. You're trying to say, I want to draw the line so I know who I'm obligated to. I'm telling you, you're obligated to everybody. I'm trying to figure out who is the neighbor. You're the neighbor. You're supposed to be a neighbor to all. And you're not. And now we're both clear on that. Who proved to be a neighbor? Who, if we were to think of the Sermon on the Mount, who loved his enemy and did good to all who was merciful like God is merciful, kind to the ungrateful and the unjust alike. This is what love your neighbor as yourself means. Love of all others like this with merciful, compassionate, selfless service. So who did that? And you can almost hear him swallow, gulp, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus comes back to where he ended the previous paragraph. Yep, go and do that. That's what the verdict hinges on. And you're not justified, are you? This is the edge in this story. This is not just a story saying, here's what you're supposed to do. Be like the Samaritan. As soon as it says, be like the Samaritan, we realize the story is also saying, and you're not. designed to sneak up on us and convict us, to show us how very much like the scribe we actually are. Sit in this for just a second. We are inclined to think that our problem is small and manageable. That if we can just clarify and maybe trim the boundaries a little bit, it's something that we can get after and we can, we can do it. And so we usually read this and say, oh, there's what selfless service looks like. Man, I should give more of my time and I should give more of my money and I should invest more in people's lives. Okay, there we go. We are so, so inclined towards self-justifying. Just tell me what I have to do to make myself right. And in a great love, in great love, what Jesus does here is 
He shapes this story so as to clarify for us. That's not who you actually are. You are inclined towards this self-justifying, towards this behaviorism, and and it, it isn't right. You cannot justify yourself that way. And so if you find yourself caught by this, hopefully you are, today, even now, or maybe next week when your conscience rises up and says, right there, that's what the sermon was about, right there, you find some unloving attitude inside of you, that was what it was about. Maybe God next Tuesday will tell you that. When you find yourself suddenly aware, seeing it, the sin of your own lovelessness, realize that Jesus has done that to you in love. Do you get that? When you see that, Jesus has done that to you in love to drive you away from this deep commitment that you have to self-justifying. The self-justifying that when we pursue it, it produces pride in us and judgmentalism. Pride when we, we have successfully trimmed the parameters of the requirement and then do it and then judge those who don't. Or, get this, that produces in you tremendous insecurity and fear. How does that work? Self-justifying produces tremendous insecurity and fear in you. We either trim the requirement and say, proudly, I've done it, or perhaps you're caught by this story and you see, boom, oh my goodness, the requirement is much wider than I thought. I had better get busy, and I don't think I can do it. And insecurity and fear as I'm trying to and trying to and trying to and trying to be good enough so as to be good. And you realize, I can't. I'm, it keeps coming back to me. I see I am unloving. Great insecurity and great fear is produced by this. And Jesus means to show this to you in kindness, to drive you away from your tendency to self-justify and to drive you into the arms of the only one, the only one who ever perfectly, with total devotion, loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and self. The only one who ever did that. The verdict of all of eternity hinges on whether or not you can stand before him and say, I have loved you totally, and my neighbor is myself. And there's only one, only one who can say yes to that. And he means to show you you can't say yes to that so as to drive you to him. And to to leave you, if if you will, exposed before God's law. I, I can't, I can't, I can't. And then you will see in that moment, but he can and he did. He can and he did for you. Because in complete devotion to his Father's will, his Father's will was that he would come and take on a body and so selflessly, sacrificially love you in this way. He would be beaten in your place, left for dead, in fact killed in your place for you. Raised up that you might be healed so that you might stand before the Father in the midst of your lovelessness, clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. Why we have to go through the first part of that to see this is actually the requirement of God. So that when we see that Jesus met that requirement where I do not, where I do not, It shows us the beauty of this Jesus. 
and, and seeing the beauty of this Jesus, the, the uniqueness, the need that you have of this Jesus, the sufficiency of this Jesus. He's all that you can, all that you can hope for. Seeing that is what draws us to him in the face of our need, and it is what God the Spirit uses to shape our hearts and minds. You know this verse? We love because, what? He first loved us. Well, okay, you intellectually know that. Maybe in this moment you see it in a different way. Oh, he loved me like that. I stood condemned in my lovelessness. He loved me like that. He loved me. That's what he will reveal to you. He loved you like that. He loved you with that kind of a wide, long, high, and deep love. That's what he will use to grow in you, love. Love for him, total devotion to him. And love for others. Because that's still what the law requires of us. We can't say, I'm clean, I'm, I'm forgiven before God, And so therefore, how I live here doesn't matter. No, it does. He still is trying to produce a people who are like Jesus. You. So he shows you his love, and we love because we see that. We love the Father. And in loving the Father, we love others. We see that me in relation to him, I'm safe and I'm secure. I see His promise to me, I will give you life if you give your life away. I see that and I believe it. Loving him, seeing how trustworthy he is. So I come upon a guy there on the road, I can give my life away to him, my time and my money, because you have me. You, this trustworthy, loving father. Loving him, I am grown to love others. The gospel is at the heart of, of not just how we end up forgiven, but how we end up changed. So God wants to lift up in front of our eyes, this is who Jesus is. And to drive us from self-justifying into the arms of Jesus that we can actually be justified and that we can actually be changed, sanctified. So, I've got to say all that, but then I also need to kind of land this plane here a little bit because there are some practical things here. If we are required to selflessly love all others, and if that's what God wants to move us towards, all others like this, what does that mean? We still need to think about that. So let's spend a few minutes here at the end thinking about that. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. So who does God want you to be a neighbor to right now? Not who's your neighbor. Who does God want you to be a neighbor to? And maybe that's not at all hard for you right now. Because the answer is, my wife, right off the top, that comes up. You ask me, do I love my wife like Christ loves the church? And the answer to everybody who knows is, ha! <laughs> not remotely. <laughs> right there. Sometimes the, this is not a complicated question. 
It might be people who live in the middle of some foreign continent, but it is also quite likely the people who live in your house or at your school or at your workplace or who are your literal neighbors right next door. Who in particular has God brought across your path? The whole world isn't your responsibility. The point is that we're not allowed to cut anybody out, but likely the people that we are to think about first are very close to us. And this is not, this is, this is real easy. I mean, I look at an audience here, and I see people who I know are Christians for a long time. I know a lot of people that I don't know here, and I see some people who are quite young. This, this is easy to understand across the board. You're 12 years old. You can get this. Who am I supposed to? Who does God put in my life so that I will love selflessly, serve selflessly? I can't do that without first remembering that Jesus has himself loved me, has himself secured me, that when I give away my life, I'll be okay. But remembering that, then moving on, who is next to you? That in devotion to God, you are to say, here's my life in compassion and mercy to love you and to serve you. Maybe it's your parent or your spouse, classmate. One example. Maybe it's your difficult, opinionated, cranky mother. Nobody has a mother like that. I made that up. Your difficult, opinionated, cranky mother. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Well, the first place you could start is saying, Lord, my life is on the table in front of you for her. And then begin to think, love her as myself. That, that's there not, not, not to give us, I heard somebody once twist this passage and say that we're supposed to love ourselves. No, no, it's assuming you love yourself. It's saying love her like you love yourself. So maybe if we think about, if I was to love myself in this situation, what, what would I want? What would I need? What would I perceive as love? Now, some of that may be wrong, but it can help you begin to think about what does this person need? How might my time, how might my resources be of aid to do her good. What is her predicament? What is her standing before God? What's her trouble? How can I be of help to that, her there in that situation? You can think about that. You can pray about that. You can say before God, I, I want to be used of you. I'm not sure what or how exactly, but he, here's me. What can I do? 
How might I be used? And then you move towards her and do the first thing that occurs to you. That may lead to a realization that was wrong. Okay, try again. We often stand back until we're sure we got it perfect. Act. And then correct if you need to. Apologize if that was a misstep. I hope that what what you're seeing here is I'm, I'm trying to walk through something specific, and I hope what you're saying is like, well, yeah, duh. Sure. Because you already know how to do this. You know how to love people. The biggest issue is, will you? The biggest issue is, will you? Here's my life, Lord, for you, for her, for him, for them. Here's my life to be used for your purposes in this one's or these one's lives. I don't know what that means exactly, but I'm going to take the first step into it and trust you with the second one. To love neighbor as ourselves is what God requires of us. It's what people in the kingdom live like. It can't happen unless we are first oriented towards Christ and secure in Christ. But we can't only be saying, I am secure in Christ, and then never saying, how does that actually land in other people's lives around me as I give myself to them? It's one requirement. To love him and love them is one requirement. This is critical for being the kinds of witnesses that he calls us to. It's critical for being the kinds of people that he means us to be. So he simply says to us, go and do likewise. I want to be a person like that. And I hope that we want to be a church like that. And I hope that we are not in this moment, any of us, check, check yourself, not in this moment, any of us thinking, well, you don't know so-and-so. <laughs> of course I don't. But that's the person who Jesus would tell you the story about. That's the person you're supposed to love. In Christ's name, for Christ's glory, for the growth of the kingdom, for this person's good and for your own good. Let me pray. Lord, would you shape us? Would you shape us to be the kinds of people that you want us to be, that you call us to be, that you require us to be. Thank you for the cleansing power of Christ that enables us to stand clean at the judgment. Justified. Justified. Thank you. Will you cause that to be real, to to be vivid in our eyes and to give us in it a great security, a great rest 
to see a great love and then to be lovers in faith. Lovers of you and lovers of those who are around us. Move us towards others around us in love, please. Shepherd Church, grow us in love of you and in love of neighbor. Thank you, Lord, and thank you for what we look at it in this communion cup and this, these little pieces of broken bread. Thank you for what you have done to make us your people. We've talked about it, and now continue to meet with us and give us room, mental room here to think about and to give thanks for your cross. Blood shed for us, body broken for us. Thank you for your goodness to us, your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.